Imagine uh, you asked me uh, how my marriage is going, uh, which is a good question to ask. Uh, and imagine I, I said, yeah, it's going really well. You know, Sarah and I often sit and talk over coffee or we go for a walk. Uh, I now put away the marmalade and the butter uh, after breakfast. Uh, I cook dinner once a week. Uh, and for birthdays, I always buy her flowers, which would be a complete lie, by the way. I don't always buy flowers, uh, but I should. It would be a good thing to do. Uh, I, I hope If you heard me say that, I, I hope you would be more than a little disappointed. I mean, I know we're, we're past those kind of wonderfully delirious days of, of you know, when we were first dating and I used to you know, run down the road to catch the bus hoping that she might be on it. Yeah, we're, we're a little bit past that. But I hope our, our marriage hasn't been reduced down to simply a, a ticker box of activities and tasks that we kind of do together. You know, I, I ain't no Romeo and Juliet, but you would hope that I would say, and I can say, uh, I love my wife. And all those other things sort of come out of that love for her. And it's kind of the same when we talk about being a Christian. You know, often I'll ask people, uh, you know, how are you going as a Christian? Uh, and people will say to me, uh, if they're a Christian, uh, good, you know, I, I go to church and, and I read my Bible and, you know, I, I serve in, in this way or, or another way. Uh, and you go, they're all good things, but again, you, you kind of miss the, the heart of what it is to be a Christian. You know, do we really love Jesus? Because that, that's right at the heart of it. Do we love Jesus, who is the Son of God, who died for our sins and rose again and now rules with the Father in heaven? Do we, do we honestly love him? And so as part of our purpose statement as a church, you'll often see this image on our bulletins and things. Uh, the first thing on that is loving Jesus. If you said, what's our church all about? It starts with individuals loving Jesus. What do I want for you as, as a minister in our church? Uh, I hope you feel welcome. I, I hope people uh, you know, make you uh, feel you know, part of our community. But more than that, I want you to know Jesus, the Son of God. And out of that flows all the other good things. God doesn't want us just to have a ticker box relationship with him. He doesn't just want religion. He wants us to earnestly love him. And that's what this passage is all about tonight. It's about how we should respond to God. So if you've missed the plot so far or you need a refresher, then here's five weeks in a minute. Uh, here's the short version. So uh, the book of Micah, Old Testament, about you know, uh, 2,700 years ago, so real old. Uh, and it starts with God coming as a hostile witness against his people, Israel and Judah. And his charge against them is they've committed idolatry, which means instead of loving God, they love the things God has created. And then in chapter 2, we see that that corruption has led to coveting what other people have and then taking it from them. And then in chapter 3, we see that uh, it's all of this is, is not just a problem of the masses, it's not just the people, but actually you know, a fish rots from the head 
And the real problem is the leadership of Israel, the political leadership, the religious leadership, who use their power rather than building people up and pointing them to God to exploit people. And in chapter 3, we see that God is going to bring judgment. So chapter 3 is just one of those bleak chapters. There's no happiness in it. And it ends with these words. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be ploughed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. That's a pretty bleak ending. Uh, Then we get to chapter 4 and we see a glimmer of hope that there will be a remnant that God will save people in the midst of all of this judgment. And Zion, which is a a city in Jerusalem, that was destroyed, will be rebuilt. But it's not talking about the city, you know, the geographical place, Zion. It's looking even further ahead to what God plans to do in the future uh, as he gathers all of his people together in heaven. And so this is how the writer of Hebrews puts it. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. And then finally in our plot so far, we see that all of this is going to happen through a ruler who comes from Bethlehem. And he will be a shepherd who leads his sheep. So he will bring security and and peace and prospering. And isn't that really what we all want? We want peace, not just uh, world peace, although that would be brilliant, but also peace within ourselves. But so often we want peace, but not the God who can bring us peace. And so as we get to chapter 6, again we see this kind of court case language as God brings three charges against Israel. So in verse 2, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. And the charge is that Israel have failed to recognize God's goodness to them. And it comes in the form of a question. So verse 3, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. And of course, for the people that there is no answer, because God throughout history has just blessed them time and time again. And so God rescued them out of slavery when they were in Egypt. And he promises them a land and he leads them to that land. And when one of the kings uh, gets in the way in that journey to that land, a guy called Balak, he hired a prophet to, to call curses down on Israel. And instead of cursing Israel, he blesses them. And he ends up cursing poor poor Balak and telling him, you're you're stuffed. Uh, But God continues to be faithful to his promises. And then finally, uh, they cross uh, the Jordan. Uh, I'll leave one of the town names out because if you get that wrong, you're in real trouble. But they end up in Gilgal, uh, which is uh, where there's a city uh, called Jericho. And from there, they take the whole promised land. Uh, So that's the short version. But Israel have forgotten all of that. So there's this history of God being faithful to his promises. And instead of seeing that history and praising God and worshipping him for who he is, they turn their back on God, they worship false gods, and they fall back into 
uh, their natural sin and selfishness and greed. And it's kind of easy, isn't it, to, to judge Israel. You, know, you look at that history and you go, you know, how could they be so daft? You know, out of everything they have seen God do, how could they be so blind? But really, we're not that different, are we? I mean, you know, th- think about our, our circumstances, like our personal circumstances. You know, we live in a place, and I'm a newbie to the area, but we live in a place where you can stand in one spot, you can look at the ocean, you can look at the waves, and you can look at the mountains all at the same time. You know, we live in an incredible place. You know, we take for granted things like Coke and chocolate and steak and fatty hamburgers with bacon and you know, extra cheese. Now, for those who actually like some nutrition, so I, I was thinking of you, Jude, uh, you know, those who actually you know, like some sustenance from your food, you, know, you can walk into a shop and on any given day choose one of a hundred fruit and vegetables. You know, we have been given so many good things. But even that is not the heart of God's goodness to us. You know, God created us, God loved us, and God wants a relationship with us. Which is pretty inconceivable. God who created everything wants a relationship with us. And even when we sin, God is willing to forgive us when we say sorry and when we repent. And God promises us a certain hope and a certain future. And even in the worst of times, and there will be the worst of times in life, they do come. But even then, God is there to comfort us. And nothing can separate us from his love. Whatever bad things happen in this life and in this time, we have a confidence of a certain future with him. That's the story of Israel. That's our story. And if we're not careful, and if we take God for granted, then we, we end up you know, chasing the promises of this world and missing out on the good things that God wants for us. We often feel that what God is offering is somehow second rate. You know, we take it all for granted and then we look at the world and go, yeah, but they look like they're having more fun. And you know, sin now gets rebranded as freedom. And how can you argue against freedom? And selfishness gets rebranded as being true to yourself. And how can you argue against honesty? And so the temptation is to look at the world and think they've got everything And somehow, if we listen to God, then we will miss out. So charge one is that Israel have failed to recognize God's goodness to them. Charge number two is that Israel have offered a false good. So verse six, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Put it another way, they're asking, How shall I honor God with my life? What does God actually want from me? You know, should it be my best cow, if you had one? You know, or should it be a thousand rams or 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Or should they be like the other pagan nations around them who literally sacrifice their children to pay the price for their sin? Is that what God wants? And it sounds like it's an earnest question, doesn't it? But actually, Israel know what God wants. God has told them. It's not that these offerings were bad. These things were instituted by God. You know, God had, you know, sacrificing a lamb to help people understand the seriousness of sin. 
to help pre- people appreciate God's holiness. And when people bought a grain offering or a first fruits offering, it was about recognizing that it was God who provides. So the sacrificial system was good, but it wasn't the whole story. You know, God doesn't want just our religion and our practices, He wants our heart. And what was the problem in Micah was really the same problem that continued by the time Jesus turns up. So this is what he says. Woe to you Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Now, we no longer live under the sacrificial system. Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for our sin once and for all. But we still feel the temptation to try to make up our relationship with religious practices. You know, they're, they're kind of a little bit inconvenient, but they still allow us to sort of continue to live the life we want to live. Yeah, so whether it's coming to church or praying a little bit or, you know, reading your Bible once, you know, every now and again, you know, just enough to, to make us feel that everything's right between us and God, but not so much that it really stuffs up things. Yeah, that, that's the temptation for us, to turn it into religion and away from a relationship. And when we do that, we shouldn't be too surprised that we find being a Christian incredibly unsatisfying. You know, we don't feel that, that sense of purpose uh, or that sense of connection with God, and we wonder why. So, so far we've got two charges. Israel have failed to recognise God's goodness to them. They've embraced a false good. And now the third charge. Israel has failed to recognise the good that God requires of them. So Micah 6.8. And finally, the one verse we actually know in this book, or at least you might have heard of. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So let's have a look at each of those things uh, a little bit in detail. What does it mean to act justly? I think so often when we think about justice, we think about our legal system, so people's rights under the law, uh, or we think about social justice, which is you know, an agreed set of values about how people should be treated in our society, that everyone has a right to safety and to shelter and to food and to access to education and medical help. As Christians we should certainly advocate for justice in our society. And we should speak up when we see injustice. But this passage is not primarily about pointing the fingers at others or pointing the finger at others and telling them what they should be doing. Primarily, it's about us. It's a call for us as Christians to act justly in in our interactions, in our sphere of influence. In any situation, there are those with power and there are those without power. Uh, So you might have power because of your institutional position. Uh, If you're the boss, you have power. 
Uh, You might have uh, power because of your influence. Uh, You have power in relationships. Uh, You might have power simply because of anonymity. Uh, No one knows what you're doing. You can lie and cheat and steal because there's no one there to catch you. Uh, But whatever our circumstances, whether people can see us or not, as Christians, we are called to act justly. So we cannot lie to get what we want. We cannot steal. We cannot use our power to exploit those who work for us. You can't take credit for someone else's good work. We cannot show favoritism and give more to the people we like and less to the people we don't like. We should pay the same amount no matter who the person is if they've got the same ability doing the same job. Those things are just. And as Christians, we have a responsibility to act justly. And I think even harder, we should call it out when we see injustice around us. And that's when it's really difficult, because that's awkward, isn't it? Uh, That really is putting yourself on the line for someone else. But when we see injustice around us, when we see someone being bullied at school, when we see someone being bullied in the workforce, then we need to have the courage as Christians to stand up and defend them, even if that comes at a personal cost. So if acting justly is about giving to others what they deserve, then loving mercy is giving good things to others, even if they don't deserve it. So this is no longer about rights or responsibility. This is about compassion. So it's about including someone uh, at school, including someone in, in your social group, or inviting them uh, to your, when you go to the movies or to the beach or whatever else. Uh, sim- not, not because you have to or you've got an obligation to, but simply because it's the right and compassionate thing to do. You know, it's about helping your neighbour out, even though uh, perhaps you know, they get drunk every Saturday night and yell and scream outside your window. Uh, or your co-worker uh, who's in a crisis and needs help, and you know that if, they were in, if you were in that situation, they would never help you. But it's still saying, how do I be merciful and how do I show compassion? And that means mercy is going to come at a personal cost. So it might be a financial cost, it might be a social cost or an emotional cost. Uh, there is no doubt that there will be people who will want to exploit you if they know you are merciful. And as Christians, we shouldn't be naive about that or ignore that reality. But we accept it as part of standing up and being a light in the world, being representatives of Christ. And we accept that it will come at a cost, knowing that you know, they are just like us, created in the image of God, sinful, selfish, but also in need of help. So we act justly, we love mercy, and finally, walk humbly with our God. Micah didn't write these words as a priority list. So it's not step one, uh, act justly, step two, love mercy, and finally, if you've got anything left in the tank, walk humbly with God. Uh, And you can't just drop out 
with God. So it's not just walk humbly. This isn't a statement about humility. It's about how we stand before God. And really, that's the foundation for everything else. So when we recognize who we are before God, then we recognize what it means to act justly and to love mercy. And humility recognizes that God really is sovereign. You know, that he is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. And that places him in a position which is infinitely wiser than us. And so when we come before God, we come before him humbly. We recognize that we are not perfect, that we are sinners, that we don't deserve his mercy. Yeah, our culture talks all, all about entitlement. You know, we're entitled to a good life. But actually, when we see ourselves humbly before God, we recognize it's, it's not about entitlement or a right. We're trusting in God's mercy and his goodness to us. And that will then flow out into how we treat other people. Because if you understand that God has forgiven you, despite the fact that you're a sinner, then that's going to shape how we then treat other people. If God has been merciful to us and forgiven our sin, then we need to show the same mercy to others. And if the, his mercy is, is costly, it cost him his life on the cross, then that gives us some picture of what it will cost us when we show mercy to others. If you remember, uh, there's a passage about the disciples and they come to Jesus and they ask him, you know, how often should I forgive? How many times do I need to forgive? You know, is seven times enough? And if it was seven times, that would have been impressive. And Jesus says, so not seven, but seven times, 70 times. You just keep on going. Because that's what God does with us, isn't it? You know, every day we sin, sometimes unconsciously, sometimes really intentionally. You know, we know what is right and we choose actively not to do it. And yet when we come back and say sorry, God forgives us. And tomorrow when we come back and say sorry, he will forgive us again. And the, the moral isn't to be complacent about sin and say, well, if God will always forgive me, who cares what I do? The moral is to go, that, that's how much God loves us. That's how much God wants a relationship with us. And when we understand that for ourselves, we start to understand how we should treat others. Judah wasn't disobedient because they were ignorant. It wasn't that God you know, was silent about how he wanted to relate with his people. They knew what God wanted for them. And instead, they tried to substitute religion for a relationship. And you know, we need to hear that and see that and not make the same mistake. You know, it is great that we do good things like coming to church and like helping others. Uh, but those things are not a substitute for us loving Jesus. And when we love Jesus, then that overflows into wanting to gather with his people. That overflows into wanting to pray, into wanting to read his word. Uh, they're the outworkings of love. They're the outworkings of a relationship. 
And when we understand that relationship, then we understand what it means to act justly and love mercy. But it starts with, do we love Jesus? And so whether you're here for the first time or the gazillionth time tonight, you know, where do you stand with Jesus? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God.